Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going, and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club, where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film A Man Escaped from 1956 with my wonderful guests, Adam Foster and Dan Wagner. All right. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. I am your host, Sarah Greenfield, and today on the show, I have my wonderful guests, Adam Foster and Dan Wagner. Hello, friends. How are you? Hello. Hey, Sarah. How are you? Hi. Welcome to the show. So this time around, we watched the film A Man Escaped, also known as The Wind Blows Where It Wishes, apparently. A Man Escaped is what we're going with (laughs) from 1956. Uh, How is this viewing for you this time around, Dan and Adam? Sure, I can go first. Adam here. This is Adam. Yeah. I had never seen this movie before, had never heard of it before. Uh, I'm happy I saw it, and I really enjoyed it. All right, Dan, how was this experience for you? This So this was my, actually, second viewing of this film. Um, I had seen it many years ago, and then during the pandemic, I actually went back and watched all of the Bersoff films, so the 12 or 13 that he has made. So, And I, I had seen, like, like a little over half. So I caught up with all of them, but I did not rewatch it then or watch it for the first time. So and this is easily my favorite of his. I mean, it's a spoiler alert. Man escaped, like, and he escapes. Like, you know, it, hit, it hits all the like Ocean's Eleven, let's put a plan together and get out of prison. Also, I believe you own two DVD copies of this film. Is this correct? I, you know, I do. I, here's one. <laughs> the other one is over by my TV. Um, yeah. <laughs> Are they both open? <laughs> no, I, no. Like neither are I, open. I, I, I got like I said, I got out of saw kick, and I when I watched them all, I was like, oh, I don't like this guy very much, and then proceeded to buy two Blu-rays of the same movie of the one that I loved the most. So I feel somewhat vindicated, although that's the first time I've ever unknowingly double purchased something. Well, I do accept Hanukkah gifts, and I do have a DVD player. So should you right. ever need to get rid of <laughs> one am, of them, I am more than happy to. I'm more than happy to. Like I said. Uh, it's a real crowd pleaser in the way a lot of this films aren't. Well, you've perfectly led me to this, which is, Sarah, why did you choose this film for this podcast? Well, I chose this film because it is an excellent film. This was also my second time viewing it. The first time I was lucky enough to see it on the big screen in 35 millimeter, and it blew me away. Like, I didn't have plans to see it. I saw that it was showing that day and I went, eh, it's got 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Why not? And it was incredible. Like what an incredible suspense film that is so spare. Um, One of the best quotes I read about it, let me share it with you. It was Roger Ebert. He said, 
I can't think of a single unnecessary shot in this film. And that is so true. It's just like a really well done, well executed, suspenseful escape film. So that's why we're watching it this week. Also, because we don't watch a lot of international film on this podcast. And I, I, you know, it's nice to watch one every now and then an international classic. Uh, So that's why we chose it for this time around. Um, I will give you a synopsis, people at home. So this film, it's very clear up front. They are like, this is a true story. In fact, let me read you the opening title card. The opening title card, uh, as written by director Robert Bresson, we are going to pronounce his name Bresson, even though it's probably not correct. And he's French and it might be like Bresson or like it might be like Bresson and we're totally wrong. I don't know. (laughs) We're going to say Bresson. So uh, the first title card says, it's a true story. I present it as it happened without adornment. This is the funniest the movie gets because like, I think the next title card basically says music by Mozart. Like unadorned, (laughs) except for the Mozart, which is not an adornment at all. I was like, I chuckled out loud. We're only going to play the one piece. So is it really adorned? Thank you for bringing that up, Dan. Yes. Um, But this movie is basically the true account of, in real life, the man's name was Andre Devenier, but in this film, his name is Fontaine. Um, He was a lieutenant that was, wait, no, he wasn't in real life. So wait, we're going to have to separate what's real life from what the movie is later. Whatever. So there's this guy, Lieutenant Fontaine. He is uh, a resistance fighter in France. He is um, put into a Nazi prison um, for essentially, they say in the movie, for being a spy. Um, And he helped to blow up a bridge. (laughs) So he is put in this prison. Um, In the beginning, he tries to escape his capture. And that just makes it worse for him. The Nazis beat him up and they put him in um, a prison cell. And he decides that he's going to escape, but for real this time. And everything that we see as the audience is what the protagonist sees. Um, For the most part, I mean, there's one instance where we don't see him kill someone later in the film. Um, But for the most part, we're just seeing and hearing what the protagonist sees and hears. So he's trying to plot his escape and he's coming up with ways to do this. Obviously, it involves an iron spoon and turning an iron spoon into a chisel and and cutting a lot of things, you know, cutting a hole in this door and making it all nice so no one can tell there's a hole in the door and cutting loose the wire on his bed and turning it into a rope. He's just like super resourceful. So he comes up with this escape plan. He's going to do it. He has a partner that he's going to do it with. The partner doesn't love the plan, gets a little too excited, tries to escape early, doesn't go well for him. The partner gets shot. And so he learns from the partner's mistakes, establishes that into his plan, makes a hook out of a lantern holdery thing, makes a bunch of them. Actually, he makes three. This is super necessary. People at home, I'm so glad I'm giving you all these details. It's really helping you with the story. Um, So eventually (laughs) he's about ready to escape. He's been given a death sentence by the Nazis. So he's like, well, I guess I have to escape before I'm murdered by them. And then he gets a roommate. And it's not just any roommate. It's like a 16-year-old boy. And you're like, damn it, can we trust this kid? Am I going to have to kill this guy in cold blood to escape? Is this kid a spy? What's going on? Eventually, the kid who does look like a young Matt Damon in Mystic Pizza is like, I'm cool. You can take me with you. So they escape together. And they get out. It works. The plan works. The kid does fuck up and he does forget their jackets and their shoes, which was his one job. But besides that, I was so angry when that happened. And his line after that is like, and then I'll do nothing about it or like, it's fine. There's nothing I could do. And I was just like, no, I leave him. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, I wrote the exact line down. It made me laugh the first time and it made me laugh this time. The Oh, and also I should mention people at home were hearing his thought process as narration. So there's very few actual like lines of dialogue in the film. Um, a lot of what we hear is what he's thinking through narration. And so there's this narration after the kid, like, first of all, a kid won't go first. He's like, no, I'm not going to go first. You do the rope. And so the guy does it. And then he goes and kills a Nazi and the kid comes down the rope. And then he realizes he forgot the stuff. And he goes, he had forgotten our jackets and shoes on the roof but I didn't say a thing. And I was like, oh, I would have said something if I was in that position. <laughs> but like, really? Really? I planned this whole escape. You can't do the one thing. Although I was thinking this time, maybe if they had had those things, it would have stressed them out more when they were crossing that final, like there's a final, um, there's a final like space that they have to cross over a rope and it's like a taut rope and they have two hooks holding it up and it's very like precarious and tight ropey looking. So I was like, well, I guess if they had their jackets and shoes, that might have tripped them up a little bit maybe. So maybe it was for the best, whatever they escaped. I, I just like closed toed shoes. That's all. <laughs> yeah. I, the thing I'd forgotten about the new inmate was that he is such a pretty boy oh so pretty he's like i don't know five six like five ten with that hair people at home what dan is describing is a perfect 90s swoop so picture like leonardo dicaprio titanic like just a beautiful 90s mushroom cut absolutely gorgeous hair i'm with you on this and yeah similarly i kind of flag on like you know on i didn't say anything but you know, from the from the little bit of research I did on this, it's like I feel like that's persona's sort of like innate Catholicism coming out in a, in a way, like the forgiveness aspect of religion. Because you know they'll either live or die, and you know those shoes and those jackets probably wouldn't help them one way or the other. So, so one of the things that I was noticing a lot, especially this viewing, was you mentioned it. So Brisson is I'm going to say it weird now the whole time. Brisson <laughs> is the director of the film. And he is famous for creating cinema that he thinks of as pure cinema, um, right? So it doesn't have a lot of theatrical elements um, and he wants things to appear like they would appear in life. And he doesn't like to use professional actors. He's pro ellipses. So he's pro the audience filling in things themselves without like showing visual sequences for that. And he's really into spare scoring, which means that a lot of the film utilizes silence. Um, but he also comes from a really Catholic background. So even though I myself have not seen a lot of his films and have only really seen this one and I've only seen it twice, what I've noticed in this film was I felt like even though it was based on a true story, they added a lot of religious elements that might not have actually been there in the first place. I'm not sure how religious um, Andre de Venier, who this story is based on, I don't know how religious he is. So I felt like they almost inserted the religion to have some sort of like arc for people that might not have been there necessarily. It was definitely for storytelling purposes. You know, for me, I didn't notice so much, only in the sense that like, I, I know he has this, that, that the director has this in him. There is a lot of talk about hope kind of early on, about what it means to kind of survive in this prison and while I didn't feel it was necessarily heavy-handed sort of Christian or Catholic elements you know although a couple of the characters are strongly portrayed as being religious um, and there's a bible involved at one point but our character doesn't doesn't really involve himself in that it's mainly I mean it's it truly is his story he gets arrested and then he escapes. And that's kind of it. That we don't get a lot about this character's personal life. This is not a story where we learn anything about our protagonist. I think for me, you're right. The religion wasn't heavy handed necessarily. I just felt like it was definitely inserted where it might not have been otherwise. Yeah. And there was like, 
So a lot of the prisoners communicate by rapping on each other's walls and coming up with codes where they can communicate with each other. And he knocks on his neighbor's wall and his neighbor doesn't respond to him. So his neighbor doesn't want to have a relationship with him. And we find out later his neighbor is an older man who was literally about to commit suicide. And then he got the knock on the wall and didn't do it. Um, So it was kind of like, ah, a savior moment. You're saving him. And then he becomes really good friends with a pastor who wants a Bible and writes out um, scripture for, I think it's called scripture. That was a very, I said it very confidently, but I'm not sure who writes down Bible passages for people that are in the prison. Um, Even when they're not allowed to have pencils, he still has a pencil to write down Bible verses for people. Um, And then there's like the element of him reading that one poem i forget what it was but it's where we get the other title the the wind blows where it wishes that comes from a famous bible passage jesus comes from jesus i'm jewish i don't know uh i forget who it is from or who's asking jesus this i'm forgetting that context but uh i think jesus is basically telling him something about you need to be reborn uh into following me and he's kind of questioning what is it like uh, what do you mean be reborn how does one get reborn like am i supposed to go back into my mother's womb it's very like literal because it's the bible and then jesus says the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes (laughs) i just like how in the title sequence it's as a man escaped or and then and then i kept going you just make up your mind which you want and this is another thing with french movies it's so precise and there's like a meaning in everything that sometimes it exhausts me but if i pay attention to it it does pay off and i mean being reborn in terms of him trying to escape prison uh and getting free again having a new you know lease on life uh you know, there's there's multiple associations with this quote and how it's portrayed in the movie of like just how sound is used in the movie. You hear things, walk into frame, walk out of frame. You get your sense of space around that. So uh, the whole thing of the wind, you cannot tear, tell where it comes and where it goes. Uh, I I can kind of see how he framed it all around this. Also, the rebirth thing. I just remembered another example of it where it didn't go well, where Orsini viewed himself as reborn and was so excited to go back out in the world and be reborn. And he's the one who jumps the gun. Like he's he's so excited to get out and start his new life that he can't he can't be patient. He doesn't have the patience to wait for the correct plan and blows it. Um, but also they do say that because Orsini failed, now the main character can succeed. But that was an example of rebirth that didn't work out where they literally say, you know, he was reborn and yet it didn't didn't go his way. Mm-hmm. Um, this is kind of a whole other thing, but I was thinking back on our lovely character, um, Jost, and how you were mentioning forgiveness and how, you know, he's able to forgive him and move forward. I love that idea. And I also love how he imports the idea of responsibility to Jost too, where it's like, so when Jost enters, he's wearing like, half of a a French uniform and half of a German uniform. And we're not really sure what side he belongs to. And he's kind of like, yeah, I'm French. I'm not real. I'm not a Nazi. He doesn't, no one says the word Nazi. He doesn't say Nazi, but um, he kind of isn't really passionate one way or the other. And I love that Fontaine is like, so the Germans are going to lose the war and it's really important what side you're on because people will remember and people won't pity you for your youth. Like, 
this is a big deal. The things that you choose to do matter. So I love that we get like a little bit of that peppered in too. I know not nearly enough about post-World War II France to know that collaboration amongst the French with the Germans was such a gigantic part of their history. And the fallout of World War II, I mean, uh, I remember seeing a couple uh, Marcel Ophel's documentaries that are essentially just about that, about what the French did and how they collaborated with the Germans. And I couldn't help thinking specifically in that moment, Sarah, was that like, you know, this is taking place, I guess, 1943 or 44. Yeah, I can't 43. remember the year. So, but like they have the future lens of it being 56 or 57, whenever they made the movie and being like, like, if you are a French and a Frenchman, you must support France. You cannot sort of like think that collaborating with the Germans to get that, you know, that meal or those bits of, uh, you know, things that'll make your life comfortable and war are, are worth it because they're not, you'll be damned forever if you do. So I, I felt like that was the one sort of over reference he was making towards, you know, what collaborators did in World War II France. Yeah. Do we want to talk about the real life guy, the real life Andre de Venier and how this story is similar and different from his own? I would love to know. I did no historical research on the true act. <laughs> I just assume it wasn't totally true. Like, ultimately, I just felt like, oh, you know, this is just a, a collection of like 40 stories about 40 mm. people who escaped from prisons and didn't oh. escape from prison. And just sort of like, sort of true in the Cone Brothers sense of the word. Like, yeah. sure, there are men in a prison during wartime. And some of them probably got out by escaping. And I'm really curious. It took me everything not to look it up because the film reads so much like we just uh, wrote the script based, you know, word for word off the memoir of this person because his voiceover just sounds like you're reading a book, which makes me just want to read the book sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, I kept wondering, like, how much of this is the movie trying to tell me, like, please believe me, this is a true story by making it sound like this, or if it actually is. So I am excited. I had the complete opposite, complete opposite (laughs) reaction. So it's kind of in the middle. I will say that um, the actual French translation of this title is not a man escaped. It's a man condemned to death who has escaped. So that's what it actually translates to. So it's like more urgent than just like a man escaped. He did it. Good for him. (laughs) Like it's got more significance. Um, so the real life story of this person, Andre Devenier, he was born in 1916. He passed away in 1999. But he, basically, he was part of an anti-Nazi resistance movement in France. He really did work in Lyon. His code name was Valentine, which is where I think they got the name Fontaine from. Oh, um, no one said that. I just think that. Um, and he basically did two things. He gave British intelligence information about the Nazis, about the Germans. And then part of his resistance group, he was like with a group of people. It wasn't just him. They helped refugees flee to Switzerland. Um, so like, those were like the two things that he did in the resistance. Um, he was caught by the Nazis. Uh, this is not in the film. He was literally tortured by, um, I don't know if anyone has heard of Klaus Barbie, who was like a notorious, very, very evil Nazi. Yeah, Hotel Terminus. Which is where this took place. They tried not to show too many um, real life markers, like have real history in there. And they really did do a a shot of Hotel Terminus, which is where uh, that was a real Gestapo place where they all lived. And that's where Klaus Barbie lived. And that was like factual to the real thing. but he, yeah, he was tortured by Nazis to reveal information. He did not reveal information. I mean, that's what he says. I'm going to believe him. 
And he actually had several escape attempts. And this prison was supposed to be known as like unescapable. Like it was supposed to be the Alcatraz of prisons, but in like Nazi territory. So um, what we don't see on film are the several escape attempts before the one big one. In the film, we only get like the one little escape attempt where he tries to like jump out of the car. No, in real life, he did a whole bunch of them and was not successful. Um, He really was sentenced to die. Uh, He was sentenced to die on August 28th. That was his execution date. And he escaped the night of the 24th slash 25th. So over that night in 1943. So he does escape. He ends up fleeing to Switzerland. He's able to do that because of the resistance group that he was in. He makes it to, uh, eventually makes it to Spain and then gets arrested there as well. And then escapes from a Spanish prison. Um, After that, he writes his memoir. It becomes this film. Uh, And unfortunately, his family, two of his cousins were um, captured by the Nazis and put into a concentration camp specifically because of his actions, uh, which is like horrible and horrifying and really sad. Oh, I forget where he ends up, ends up. I want to say he does come back to France, but I'm not 100% sure on that. I just know he lives a good long life, writes this memoir, and this is like actually the way he escaped. Like it's very true to what really happened in the escape attempt. Um, I know nothing about if Jost is real and who Jost is, oh, yeah. and there's no information online about this person, so hmm. I know nothing about him. If that any of that's real, maybe him just not bringing the shoes. Kept him out <laughs> it's of the just book. like <laughs> no, no, he, he was just really burned by that. All those, yeah. So here's the thing: when you we were just talking previously about sort of the connection to Catholicism and thinking like I didn't, I don't, I didn't see Fontaine as kind of like a Jesus figure at all. He is not someone who rallies someone who is like cause and you know. But like, I, I kind of wonder if the the Joe's character is meant to sort of be that way, and maybe we are meant to see Fontaine a little bit as sort of a Jesus figure. I don't know. Now the more I think about it, those scenes in the prison where he's telling him like, "You you can't collaborate with the Germans. You must be French." Like that's telling him to like lead a, a, a just and you know pure life in the way maybe Jesus would. I don't I don't know. I'm, I'm curious now to think if if Fontaine is more of a Jesus figure than I, I was initially giving him credit for and maybe that's where the catholicism of the christian meanings come in oh yeah it just you're reminding me of another quote uh from the film where he's he talks to the, the pastor quite a bit and uh, he says something like um or his quote is about like uh like how easy is it going to be to escape or something and then uh fontaine says like he'll save us if we give him the chance so i feel like it was like kind of responding back to the pastor of like, don't just let things happen. Like you kind of have to put in the work to show that you care. And I don't know, him kind of schooling the pastor could be thought as a very Jesus-y move. That's a really good point. And then people kind of denying him at the end could be a little bit Jesus-y. People like losing their faith a little bit, kind of like, eh, prove, prove to us that you're a Jesus figure. You got to get out now. We don't know if we believe in you. Like, yeah, the doubt of in the faith. And if this is not in the memoir, would that be also trying to associate him with kind of a Joan of Arc kind of character of this kind of saint? It's almost like they made him too perfect. Like, I, I love this movie and I think it's wonderful. And But what I'm thinking about right now is how smooth everything is and how kind of flawless this character is. It's and as so it's precise interesting. as the escape. Yeah, it's as precise <laughs> as the escape. So the actor that plays Fontaine, his name is Francois Leterrier, and this is his first film. 
that he acted in ever. And he was a Moroccan soldier. So he knew how to like be all soldiery and he did go to university. So he was educated as well. Um, he ends up being a director and his son ends up directing. Now you see me, but that's neither here nor there. And it's just fun facts on the side. But uh, it's almost like, even though he wants like this non-professional actor, this spontaneous feeling, everything is so perfect that he never really makes a mistake ever it's like to in real <laughs> life the guy had so many unsuccessful attempts but we don't see that we just see like everything amounting to perfection and everything looks like it's rehearsed like when he jumps on that final rope he's so graceful like my my notes about it were i was like you're so elegant <laughs> and so competent and so resourceful like it, he doesn't really ever make a mistake and that's fine. We need that for the storytelling. So we kind of need him to be incredibly capable and competent, but it's almost too much. He's just almost too perfect. Maybe too cheesy, one might argue. It is that final crossing over on that rope where they're just kind of there for a while. And the bike is kind of like doing this patrol, which I definitely want to come back to that bike, but- uh, The creaky patrol. (laughs) The creaky creaky bike control. Uh, But they end up kind of sitting on this roof ledge for what is sort of intimated to be a couple hours. And I just assumed it was like, oh, they want to escape in the morning. So when they jump over the- uh, when they jump over the final wall, there'll kind of be people around and they can blend in. That's what I kind of thought it was leading up to, or maybe because I, I don't, I, you know, I didn't quite remember the end end, but what I read somebody saying was, no, it's in this moment where he loses his faith, where he's like, he can't do this. And he's just sort of like trapped there on this final sort of roof and he can't go over and that. And, and reading that was like, I, I tended to fall along the lines with you, Sarah, it's like, you know, he never gets like the spoon confiscated or it doesn't like, I think the worst that happens is like the, the spoon spoon part like breaks off at one point. And that is like the, the largest of the calamities that we really have. Cause otherwise he does this thing and it works out. He does a little bit more and it works out. He does a little bit more and it works out and suddenly they're out. But it's only in that moment. I was like, Oh, I guess, I guess that's that moment where you wonder like he's still got to escape and he's still terrified. And I'm sure it's still awful, but he managed to kill somebody and does it, you know, with, without much thought but at that point he's kind of committed but uh but you're right he does it with jazz hands if i may that's one of the parts of the movie that actually is not supposed to be funny but is very funny i did laugh (laughs) and i rewound and watched it again right yeah i chuckled i I chuckled at that we're gonna describe this moment for you there's a moment when he realizes like oh my gosh in order to escape i need to like kill a nazi i'm just gonna have to do it and in real life he killed him with that bayonet he like stabbed the nazi with a bayonet from his gun This is, we're not doing that. Rated R is not a thing yet. We're not doing that. That's not happening in this. Instead, what he does, (laughs) it's like one of the only things we don't see on camera from our protagonist's point of view. We know that the Nazi's approaching and he jumps out with like jazz hands to surprise him (laughs) and to (laughs) strangle him. And it's, I know it's not supposed to be funny, but it's funny. And then he walks back so sad. Yeah. Yeah. It's just because, yeah, you're left there with like a blank space. And the last thing you see is him like really animated. And then he walks back just so deflated. And it's, I mean, it works, but at the same time, it's, it's a little funny in today's standards. It goes back to what you're saying about the ellipsis of it all. And like, we can, we, we fill in what he like, Mm -hmm. at some point, I think it would have been strange if there to either been like a, like even a 15 second fight between those two people in a movie where where I don't even know when he's getting beaten up, when Fontaine is getting beaten up early in the movie, all we hear is like kicking and punching. When he escapes from the car, gets back in the car, we see the one German sort of take the butt of his gun to his head, but it's in a, it's like a basically mid-fade at that point. So like, we never see any of the violence. I guess we see a little bit more on the German, the Fontaine side than we do on the 
Fontaine to the German side. But like, yeah, I mean, I think it just, it would have been weird to have like a, you know, a 30 second like struggle and them rolling around in the dirt and strangling him or stabbing him or something like that. Like, For sure. It's just it's like, nope, he killed him and we, we fill in the gap. It was truthful to the film and how the film was made. Um, yeah. And I also want to circle back. I was not being fair to Fontaine earlier. I apologize. That's on me because he does acknowledge his feelings. He is imperfect. Like earlier, the moment you're talking about, he literally acknowledges I hesitated. He admits, like, I was scared. I sat. I has I hesitated. Yeah. And then earlier, there's a part where he like has uncontrollable laughter, and he's like, "That just came out of me. Don't know what that was about. I guess I was that <laughs> nervous." And then there's a part where after they beat him, and he's like, "And I cried." So I was like, "Oh, you yeah. are able to share your feelings." That's true. That's true. But he is so incredibly competent that you're like, "How do you think that way?" Like after he wakes up from the Nazis beating him, he's covered in blood, and you know how badly he was beaten, but he's still like, "And I must move slowly." so that they think I'm really, really badly harmed. Like I have to play this game. And I was like, how are you that smart? I wouldn't figure all that out right away. He's just so incredibly competent all the time. And I was jealous of that and also found it attractive at the same time. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it's the thing about like where we don't have his backstory. I think any other film there would have been the heart to heart with Jost, like in a way to win his confidence or with the yeah. the other character who's or Osini or one of them is like, well, you know, 10 years ago or 10 months ago, I was in a prison and I had this mentor. And, and we, don't, we don't get any of that. The, the, the narrative is kind of uninterested in that backstory. The point is the escape. Yeah, the point is the escape. And like the the assumption is like, well, he did learn this someplace or, you know, he is resourceful. It's funny because like when, we, when you talk about the voiceover narration, it's like the it's the show don't tell, but it's often the the tell and the show. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's like he does this thing. And then explains the exact same thing in the voiceover or vice versa, like does the voiceover and then does the exact same thing. So Dan, give us an example for the people at home. I really can't. But I think it's in that moment you're talking about, like, like when he's on the bed, he's like, and then I cried. And then it shows him crying. Yeah. Well, we don't really need him to say he's crying, but we still got to get those occasional moments of like, I sharpened the spoon and you see him sharpening the spoon on the ground. And then I chipped away at the wood and you see him chipping away at the wood, which is not strictly necessary and I know people have bigger issues with voiceover narration than I do. I, I generally don't. I generally don't mind it. Sometimes I don't mind things being a little over literal for me. There are a lot of ways to tell stories. If they were all the same, we'd be bored out of our minds. So I'm for it. It's fine. <laughs> but in a sense of like I said, you know, oh, you know, show don't tell. It's like, oh, I, I actually kind of, I actually liked when both of those things were happening at the same time. And it's definitely weighted more towards the beginning of the film. And the voiceover basically disappears, I think, by the halfway point and there's only a, a, a little bit happening when when he's really quiet and they're doing the escape like there's not a lot of talking in that last probably 20 minutes and mostly it's just voiceover and some whispered you know instructions to jost while they escape so i didn't mind it so much it's really iconic now that we're talking about it i'm like when did this happen before this film and this has like become a trope of kind of like when you think of if you were to think of an escape film you might think of all the tropes that come from this one and I wonder, was this the first film to do that? I don't know. I, I, can't, I As someone who's paid attention to film history for a long time, I'm always bad at these moments. I'm usually like, was this the first? And the person's like, no, Sarah, it was very much not. And you're an idiot. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, no. Wait, was A Man Escape the first film ever made? Were the films before? It's like, yeah, I, I, can, I can never connect those two things. The one thing I did think about, and it's the obvious, I think it's the more obvious comp, is uh, Morgan Freeman and Shawshank Redemption. But his voiceover in that film is definitely more of a sort of a spiritual flowery kind of like 
discussion of what's going on in in the film not like oftentimes just directly describing what is well and it's not all about him either in Shawshank right so this is just like us getting the direct perspective we are inside his head and we're seeing what's happening but we're getting nothing about his personal life we're just moving episode to episode you you don't get that sort of tedious five-minute conversation where he talks about his past or somebody else's past you get a little bit of other people's past like oh here's in prison because he did this or they're in prison because they did that but yeah his backstory basically is yeah when he when he goes to hotel terminus and they explain like you know you're guilty because you tried to blow up a bridge so and that's the only backstory we get from which isn't actually based on real life either i uh actually had to watch this movie twice this weekend (laughs) and it's because of the voiceover and i was going to just watch it once and then as soon as there's a lot of talking i especially when i'm watching something at home i start tuning out and that's just my own thing it has nothing to do with the quality of the movie um but then i just to watch the movie i just let it wash over me i i kind of knew and got the feeling that he was just describing what he was doing and thankfully where i decided like oh i'm actually liking what this movie is doing is visually it really does tell the story in a very interesting and abstract way as well to make you feel trapped with it and I I finished the film going, wow, that this movie kind of like scared me. Like it was like it reminded me of some horror movies that are like some of my favorite horror movies of like the thing you don't see is what's terrifying. Um, but still, I went back and watched it <laughs> the next day because there was something that tell just made me feel like, no, there's there's got to be a reason for like having this much description, like like you're talking about Dan and what it it really kind of turned into me as I was this second watch I didn't have to like think about okay who's going where what am I listening to who you know what sound is this uh it was just following the dialogue and I got just a deep sense of planning and just I am doing this to stay sane and that really worked And, and I was really glad that I watched it that second time and didn't push it to the side as like, oh, this is just kind of outdated or, you know, this is just how movies used to be made, but that there was a point to like the character of why he was talking this much in his head and propelling himself forward in that way. I wasn't considering that at all. I was considering it from a viewer. It keeps you engaged. It cuts through a lot of the silence because we get a lot of silence in the film. So you need something uh, that will keep you engaged. And like with this, that's like an auditory something, I think. So yes, what you were saying from a character perspective. (laughs) I would love to see a sans BO version. Like it would be fun to watch both because that would even propel his ellipsis idea even further the directors of like oh you just figure out how this guy learned how to make a hook (laughs) yeah i I guess i kind of thought it was just that it was just like well here's my here's my opportunity like i want people engaged with this story so in order to make sure people engage in the story like how many people have broken out of a a prison during world war ii i mean so many of us can really relate to that yeah so like two (laughs) out of the three two out of the three of us are here i've done it (laughs) yeah surprisingly (laughs) Um, so yeah it's just one of those things like oh I think he's just kind of filling in these details because like we can see him chip away at the wood and maybe get to it eventually but like I mean it is kind of cool knowledge he's like oh because this wood is this kind of wood and this wood is this kind of wood and that wood's softer and I can chip away and I was like oh that's that's an interesting detail to have because um, yeah I can watch him chip away at it and kind of and I would understand what was I think I would understand what was going on but like when those like tiny little factoids come in you're like oh there you go like 
there, I guess there's more depth and detail there that are probably giving it credit for. But I also think the thought process helps to build the suspense too, because this is such a suspenseful film and it shouldn't be like on paper. It doesn't read that way. Like a really good quote that I read about it was um, with the simplest of concepts and the sparest of techniques, Robert Bresson made one of the most suspenseful jailbreak films of all time. So that's from the Criterion channel, everybody. That was where I got that quote. Um, But basically, this is an episodic suspense film. And I think without the narration, we lose a lot of what the tension is because we wouldn't know, we wouldn't be clued into what he's thinking and feeling. So we wouldn't understand what to feel suspenseful about necessarily. Like in his brain, we learn like, okay, do I have to kill Jost or not? Because we're not getting that from his outer (laughs) outer body language. We only get that from hearing his thought process. So I think that's how they helped to do things like build the suspense um, and just to explain things and to explain the world around him. Do we want to talk about that? How they made this whole episodic film suspenseful? It's basically like one problem solving moment after another. I was trying to think of other movies that are kind of like that. And the only one I can think of is um, The Martian. The Martian. Yeah. But it's definitely like, here's a problem. I'm going to solve it. But in some ways, it's like, it's just like, I wonder if the reason like you were kind of all wary of Joe's when he shows up is because up till then, we are the cellmate. We are his cell. Yeah. We're oh. the person in the cell. We're, we just had to be extraordinarily lazy and refuse to help him. And he's just constantly having to explain, like, well, why am I doing this? Because this wood is softer, dude. Like, you know, chip away. Just help me. I was like, eh, you know, like, oh, I gave my spoon back. To the, I was supposed to keep the spoon today. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'd help you, but I keep forgetting to save. So, like, you know, we are we are the cellmate in this in this story. We're meant to be kind of like sitting right next to him, maybe not necessarily encouraging or helping him, but like we are kind of there with him. And I think we're meant to 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 be the second person in the room with him constantly we would have forgotten his shoes and his jacket we totally would have mm, not me i don't know i don't think i would have i don't think i would have <laughs> i treasure my shoes i mean that bloody shirt i think i might have forgotten that i've been like hey guy i think we can find some better fashions on the outside to do a like a very side like tangent side rail like how are all these things coming into his you know, he gets a package. People are like losing blankets to him and no guards are noticing like, oh, where'd his pillow go? Oh, where'd his spoon go? <laughs> they come in and check his package. And I'm like, wouldn't you have checked this package before you brought it to him? Okay, you checked it again. And then it's not weird that he's now using this twine and everything for his rope. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to suspend my disbelief. But... Yeah, that is the one... <laughs> part where I think I flagged a little bit too like everything like the, the, the suspension of disbelief and reality fallacy and all of that like a movie gets has to get constructed the way movies get constructed but it's that one like he gets a new suit sent and wouldn't you be wouldn't one of the guards be like hey where's that new suit yeah why still yeah. wearing that bloody shirt why is your cell emptier and emptier every time I come in like I know we gave you nothing but this is a bit much I mean I hear you sweeping up but like so yeah, that was a one time in this sort of foolproof plan, which I buy into completely where you're like, he gets a package. I think people would have noticed him not using the new stuff or having giving it away. You're correct. I mean, it kind of jumps over that relatively quickly because it really is, I mean, it really is his story. There is also no like, we never get the Nazis given side eye or anything. We spend, we, we spend literally no time with them. We never see a Nazi face which I thought was fascinating. They're almost always in passing side glances or if they're frontal, it's like just for a second because they're like either coming in or out of rooms, always from the back, always low or high or a shoulder or the back of the head. We never, you know, face is never focused on ever, which is one of the things which I thought was really smart 
about this movie because then it kind of removes the like no it's about this guy escaping it's not really about the war although it is in a sense because it still takes place in the war but no it's, it's about this guy it's not about the nazis not about their not directly about their atrocities or you know what they did in the war it's just about this guy escaping this person yeah well, I think it's because at this point, it's like, well, we've heard those stories. We've seen those movies. We've seen a lot of them. What we haven't seen is someone escaping from a prison in detail. <laughs> and what yeah. we get, we still get it. I mean, every time we hear the rat-a-tat-tat of a gun, like, no, there's there's yet somebody else being you know, killed or murdered. So, like, we don't need to see their face. We just need to hear their actions to, to know what is going to... What, what they're still what they're still capable of and what they're still doing we don't see we don't need to see them like drag somebody out of a prison cell and then a cigarette smoking german explaining how they're superior to everybody like no 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 it's un- unnecessary a couple gunshots every 10 to 15 minutes reminds us of what these people were capable of. yeah and that's enough and just the atrocity with the pencil alone just like we will shoot you if you have a pencil in your room we will shoot you like that reminds us again oh yes the nazis are fucking nazis they're the worst yeah but I do want to say, I also was curious about that moment too, with when he gets the package and they're like, what have you done with the stuff? In my brain, I was like, yeah, but they're Nazis and Nazis are the fucking worst. So they were probably just like, I like to think that they're so stupid and evil that they're like, no one can get past us. So it's not even on their radar. They already moved on. For sure. I think we read it that way, yeah. Or, subplot, Terry was a good buddy of everybody's. Maybe they're like, ah, Terry left this guy his stuff and we love Terry. Yeah. I don't know. I added a whole Terry subplot in there in my brain, but mm-hmm. I was wondering these things too. But this is how my brain solves those problems. It's not yeah. accurate and it's not part of the movie, but these are explanations that I gave as a former actor yeah. who need to know <laughs> all no, that, of the information. <laughs> I'm actually okay with the package now. <laughs> Thank you. Terry was the guy who was passing notes in the very beginning. Yes, of the- I loved Terry. Sweet little Terry. Okay, sorry. Who's Terry? I missed Terry. That's okay. <laughs> Small part. When he's on the first floor, the three men outside his cell were kind of passing oh, notes yeah, 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 back yeah. and forth. And yet, like, this is where it's masterfully constructed. It's like, passes notes, kicked up to the third floor, 40 minutes later... Hey, everybody, uh, I watched these three guys get killed. And you know immediately what three guys they're talking about. Oh, no. I'm just finding this out. I've watched this movie twice this weekend, and I'm just wait, finding it out. But then Terry visits him again. So didn't Terry? Wait. No, I don't. He did. He, I just assumed when the one prisoner is um, like, you know, I witnessed these three men being. And maybe this is just the genius of the filmmaking. And maybe I'm wrong because I, I have the sequence of events incorrect. But like, I just remember thinking like, oh, I just watched three guys uh, be assassinated. So and I was like, oh, well, the only three guys we've seen together are these three people in the, you know, out on the lawn walking back and forth. And I just assumed, oh, yet again, here's another instance of Bersan being able to show like the evilness of, of of Nazis in Germany by like sort of just offhandedly mentioning something. And you're like, at least for me, I made the connection to those three guys. I didn't think about it. Now I'm like, oh, I want to go back and see. <laughs> I don't want it to be Terry and his little buddies. They were so cool. They were so great. They were the only ones allowed to walk unattended for yeah. reasons we'll never know. And it doesn't matter. Um, yeah. But he does mention, yeah, Terry comes up to his room and he's like, I don't know how he got up there. I don't know how he could say goodbye, but he did. We don't know where he's going and we don't know if he's going to be okay or not. Well, so, I guess, yeah, maybe I, maybe I'm just creating this all in my head. But. That's you're following what what we all do. I think it works. <laughs> you found a detail. It was great. Um, what else do we want to talk about? I mean, I wrote down character arcs. 
I feel like most films have a very strong character arc. And I feel like this one, it's like, ooh, what is the character arc? Does our main character learn anything or change or grow in any way? I don't know. I think Blanchette does for sure. The neighbor, I think he changes and grows. I think he gets hope. Oh, he he sure. becomes hopeful. Yeah. And I think that Jost maybe becomes a little more self-aware about the world and what's going on in the world. Yeah. So what do you think the main character, Fontaine, learns in his journey? Yeah, I don't know if he does. But, I, you know, I, I feel like we get a pretty resolute character at the beginning because he's arrested, but then immediately tries to escape. As soon as he's got an opportunity, he's out the mm-hmm. door. So, like, you know, I, I, like I said, I don't feel like he ever wavers from his plan other than, you know, momentary moments of, of feeling, like, unsure or, like, scared. But, you know, he essentially follows it down the line. I mean, if anything, maybe to get heart, go back to the the Jesus story, like he does the more sort of inspiring of of the people around him. So, you know, his character arc is the, I guess, the positive or the hopeful influence that he he gives to everybody around him. Not being sure if you can succeed, but going for it anyway. Like the quote Adam read earlier where Adam, you were like, it's like uh, the wind might blow us, but we also have to choose. We have to like do the work behind what we're doing. It doesn't just blow you in a random place. So maybe it's yeah. like him consolidating yeah. those ideas. <laughs> and I if know. I may, another quote I wrote, uh, it gets to the chiseling at the door. He says, uh, uh, the door just had to open. I didn't know where it would lead me. And so I think he's always just kind of chasing something. And I think that's what I was noticing in my first watch when I didn't know what was happening. I was just so scared. And this is the going back to your suspense point that he is just doing things to see where it goes. And he's being very careful to get to that place. And then he's going to assess the situation, go back, collect himself and keep thinking or get some new information in another way. But everything that drives him is just, can I do this? This is like my goal for the day. And like once he gets out of the door, like he gets the three boards open and then he tests like just walking around the upper floor once. But then one thing I wasn't quite sure, he goes over to like another guy's door and he like erases something. And I didn't quite understand what that was all about. Like it said, don't eat, don't exit. And he like erased it. And I couldn't tell if that was like the Nazis writing on that prisoner's wall, like don't feed this person, don't let them leave. And that he was erasing that so that the next patrol that comes up goes like, oh, I guess my superior will allow me to feed this guy now. And that he was kind of like, that was his goal that night. Yeah, that's it. Like building his karma, building his like his next phase. But it kind of seemed like he, yeah, he didn't really know how he was going to get out. He was just going where the wind took him, where it blew. Yeah, that's why it's funny that it ends up being anticlimactic at the end when they do escape, because like there's so much tension around each moment and like he does everything so carefully and quietly. And there's oh, there's so much tension. So when they finally get over to the other side and they can just go, it's like, oh, all right. Well, that was it. <laughs> there's no like celebration. He like gives Jost a side hug and is like, Jost. Yeah. And that's all he says. Cue Mozart. <laughs> I, I, read, I read a few other things that sort of talked about like, oh, I'm surprised that it ended happily. Because one of the things I can tell you about the rest of his filmography is that it mm-hmm. often does not. This is his most hopeful film. It said that online. So it must be true. There are so many of his films where um, I don't want to say it ends negatively, but definitely on a on a downbeat moment that is meant to sort of challenge you to like 
either not be like the characters that you've just watched and don't get caught in their traps of self-recrimination and you know so this one is just like no perseverance if you persevere Ooh, you can escape yeah. and if you if you persevere and you maintain like the moral high ground like if you're on the correct side if yeah. you're you know not a nazi yeah i was curious what were your guys's favorite tools or like espionage thing that he did i think man that's a hard one because they're all great he had me at the spoon when he turned that spoon into an implement that could carve. I was like, this is where it all began. This is where all those jokes about spoons and prison came from. It's right here, right now. And I'm witnessing it. So I think him turning that spoon into a chisel and then both taking the, the wire off his bed to make a rope with that spoon and also carving the door out. Perfection. Perfection. I couldn't do that. It's definitely the wire from the bed. Although at some point that does strain, like there's no way what's left there could have <laughs> held him up. Well, he was very thin. He was a bird-like man. Yeah, so maybe. Barely fed. Yeah. So I like, guess we're going with that. We're definitely going with that. But at some point, like, I just remember him like that scene where they just spiral out. And I'm like, oh, that's, that is great. But yeah, at some point they pull the bed back and it seemed like it's just like three cross wires, one direction and three cross yeah. wires. Like, no, there's, uh-uh, he's, that mattress is good. His butt is going to go straight through that thing. But yeah. like, it's fine. Yeah. It's fine because like the detail of having that is so cool. They're like, yeah, okay, no, no, that's fine. I, you know, I, I'm definitely, I'm j- definitely jumping over this sort of, uh, this plot hurdle and not looking back. Cause it's just, it's just a great bit. The favorite thing I did and it, this is such like a, it just goes back into like my childhood watching my dad or grandpa, like how they fix something. And it's when he uses that spoon and he like lifts up that top bracket of the door that's holding the three boards down and a big chunk comes off. And he's like, oh no, I didn't want that much of the wood to come off. And then he uses little tiny shims and I love shims. You're going to need to tell people at home what a shim is. It's just this little tiny piece of wood that you'll, you'll kind of hammer in to either like level something like an uneven like chair or uh, basically to prop something in and like squish it in and like hold it there with pressure he would just hammer these little tiny uh like splinters basically into the corners of this chunk of wood that fell off to hold it back into place and then this part made me laugh so i thought this was actually kind of silly but then he uses the pencil to like color in yeah. the yeah. tip around it and i was just like <laughs> Sure, let's pretend that that's okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But like, well, this is uh, this is to go back to the building dispensing. This is great. Yeah. This is like, like, because when yeah. that chunk comes out, I was like, oh, that's too much. Like, he doesn't yeah, even yeah. need to tell me it's too much. And then, and then he puts the little nail with the rag, and I was like, oh, he figured, yeah, like, perfect. No, no, <laughs> he smart. figured that out because like, yeah. that pencil thing is going to fool nobody. We can't forget that he also made paint out of the dirt on his floor and water. Oh, yeah, yeah, he stained that wood with dirt, and I was, I like, damn. That's that's yeah, real yeah, smart. Yeah. yeah. And it does make you just kind of every time that door opens, you go like, is that weird piece of paper gonna fall off? Is that like I love shims, but shims don't always work. So that's another reason why I was just like, that's all he has. From there forward, every time the door closed, he's always standing right there and his yeah. hand just gently eases. <laughs> like just before it like can like slam shut, his hand is just there to ease it close. And like that is that is such a perfect little detail. I mean, so so easily could just be like no shims and 
then it's fine. And we were never going to mention it again. But like, no, every time yeah. the door closes, you know that chunk is there. You know it's mm -hmm. precarious. Yeah. And he has to stand there. The, I don't know, felt like the 10 times the door closes after that to just make sure that it doesn't slide, which is just like a perfect. And the stress of the the room searches of that him hiding stuff. And there's one point where he was like, they're going to check our rooms for pencils. What am I going to do? And then we never see the results of that. We never see if I wanted like a room search and him to get away with that. But they never did that in the film. Um, but that was like where some of the stress lies also of like, he's hiding all of these random things in his bedding and all these, you know, right by the window where they can't see it. And you get so stressed for, oh God, if there's ever a room search, what is he going to do? They did explain the pencil though. He does hide, but he didn't explain all his other shit. So, cause they were like, we're going to do a room search to find the pencil. I'm like, they're going to find everything. If they look for that pencil, they're going to find the hooks. They're going to find the rope. <laughs> the Nothing. hooks are just out of the open. Now that I think about it, like, yeah, where was he storing all of that rope? He stored the hooks by the window. The hooks seemed a little casual. The rope under the bed? The rope was in the bed? But I think here's a here's an instance like, he needs ropes and we're not going to show you where he hid them because to show us where he hid them would be like, oh no. That's too much. <laughs> that's that. Yeah, that's not gonna work. Oh my god, I know what he did. It was the pillow. Remember how he used all the horsehair from the pillow to make the stuff? He just put those ropes back in the pillow and pretended they were a pillow. That's no. what he did. No. But, but we don't see that. No, I made that up. That was me making that up right but now. But that's very smart. And I think that is ultimately what he wants us to do. But it stressed me out because I was like, I don't know where he's keeping things <laughs> and I don't want them to do a room search and I'm scared for you. But they do explain where he hid the pencil, which yeah, was yeah. really nice of them because we would have all wondered. Because it's such a great callback like 20 minutes later. It's like, oh yeah, how did that? Oh yeah, no, it's just it's just up in a little hole on the other side of the slot bucket. And he's like, but Joe, be careful. They'll shoot you if you use it. And Joe's just like, <laughs> um, okay. I'm 16. Okay. So, okay. Let's see. Is there anything else we need to discuss? I do want to say details wise, some things I want to point out is that the music that they use in this film is Kyrie from Mozart's Great Mass in C minor. It's very choral, used sparingly, but somehow more joyful at the end when they escape. And I was like, okay, I don't know how you did that, but you made it sound happier right now. So I want to call that out. I also wanted to say that I think it's funny that Bresson's very like pure cinema, no theatricality. Like I don't want any theatrical elements. But then at the end we get like, they're walking away and a gorgeous fog fills the frame. And then it goes, thing. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, that's theatrical. What's so yeah. wrong with that? Yeah. What's so wrong with that? That's, those are two things I wanted to call out. Did you guys have anything else that we like, did not talk about they're like oh, i want to talk about this so bad my two things are just uh, were audio things again like the bike going around because when they first i can't remember if they're still in the cell or when they maybe get out to the roof for the very first time you just you hear the squeaking of the bike and then totally pays off when you finally see it. it's like he's so good about that because the other one is like like so totally minor but when he's being brought i can't remember if he's being brought into the prison or he's being brought to the third floor and the guard is just wrapping the key on the banister up you get this clink 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 and then 50 minutes later you're this clink 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 and it doesn't mean anything except you just know who that person is you just can visualize it that's that guard and like if those two things are there and that in the i guess the the gun shooting to signify you know, the executions of like, we're meant to hear something and then remember something. There must be more than that in this film. And those are just like the two that are just like, I thought were really sort of pleasurable to be yeah. reminded, especially the guy with the keys. Just like, it's, it's not really important that like 
we even get that later on. I was like, oh, I know who that is. <laughs> that was like deeply pleasurable in that moment to like hear that noise again, be able to connect the things together. We're hearing the world through the prisoners and how they would learn information and he would know that prison guard based on that. I had not thought of that before. That's really smart. Um, some other really great sound moments that are utilized beautifully. I love the gravel moment, the mm-hmm. trains, when he cracks the skylight. I feel like the sounds are so, they're so such normal sounds, but they're so heightened when you're so aware of being silent. Yeah. Um, and then you reminded me with the gunshots, I forgot about this moment where um, we don't really see any women in this film. We know that women prisoners exist and that they're badasses because they send him the best care package ever um, when he's like, Hey, uh, Terry, my good buddy, uh, can you please get me a safety pin so I can undo my handcuffs? Thank you so much. Terry's like, I'll go see what the women have. I'll be back. And he comes back with this awesome bundle that says courage on the Uh outside. (laughs) And it has a razor blade, which helps him with everything later on. Mm -hmm. Um, It has the safety pin so he can undo his uh, manacles. I never say manacles. That was really satisfying. And it has um, like food. And I was like, yeah, these women are fucking great. They get what's going on. He asked for a safety pin. They over-delivered. Cool. So that was food. I think it was like a chocolate bar and marshmallows. That's what I thought it was. But then I was just like, I don't know. That seems too decadent. But I also distracted myself because what I was leading to is we know there's women around, but there's a moment where the women are walking in the courtyard and there's like shots going on in the background and they just kind of like stop and then keep going. And you're like, whoa, everyone is so desensitized to the violence here because they're living in it. And that was a really great way of showing that, that we're like afraid, but also desensitized at the same time. Um, And then the mundanity of like the only outdoor time they get all day is like he's trapped in this really small cell. And then they go outside to empty their slop bucket, get a little more food and go right back upstairs. And just like the lack of humanity and him talking about how all his muscles are depleting He's worried he won't have the muscle strength to get out. They can't even talk while they're washing at common person wash time when they all have their great chats that are three sentences long because the guards are like, stop talking. Stop talking. Not that this movie is a laugh riot, but like the 15th time that happens is is still pretty funny. You sort of do chuckle in those moments of like, no, no talking. It's like, there it is. See, this is your fault. Oh, right at the end. I forgot this crazy suspenseful moment too. Right at the end when he passes the note to his friend, the pastor that literally says everything that he's about to do and he hasn't done yet. And it's in his pocket and the guards taking the notes out of the pockets and he skips over the pastor's pockets. Oh man, they get you with that suspense right there. That was a crazy bathroom time that had a lot of suspense in it. There was non sequitur. Just I remembered it right now and shared it. And yeah, that was pretty intense. I can't believe I forgot that. What a moment! He was like, "Yeah, that was bad. I wrote everything down." Uh-huh. Oops. <laughs> Oops. Here you go. If you we have any silly things that we thought were funny, I think we actually talked about all of them. Mine were like, "Jost, you had one job. God damn it, and you <laughs> couldn't even do that." Jost's walk is ridiculous. If you watch this again, watch the way that Jost walks. He walks like he's in a 1930s like either movie musical or like my girl friday like he's his girl friday not my girl friday it's very like comedic and very over the top and like this is how people walk in a play i just <laughs> check it out it's bananas that's a perfect description i wrote jazz hands at the nazi we talked yeah. about that um oh so i i mentioned earlier i felt like uh from jost i was getting a mystic pizza matt damon but from uh, our main character, Fontaine, I was getting like a sexier version of Ellen Alda. Was anyone feeling these comparisons? Oh, wow. I could see that. Now. Yeah. <laughs> there was just the anamorphs of it. I can definitely see that now. Thinking, yeah, definitely like late 70s, early 80s, 
mash episodes. But like he was more sure of himself, you know, yeah. less anxiety than Alan Alda. That's a good comp. Yeah, that's what I was feeling. That, yeah. And then the 90s hair. We already talked about that. Most of my silly things were Jost related. I just like the thing, the thing that he just reminded me of was of um, Craig Schieffer. Sheffer? I don't know. In, um, oh shoot, what's the, uh, this is my wife's favorite film and now I'm going to totally blank on it. It's uh, Eric Stoltz. Oh. And uh, Leah Thompson. Some kind of wonderful. He reminded me of Leah Thompson's asshole boyfriend who I guess she breaks up with mm. earlier in the film. Um, yeah. They had that, they had this sort of like, like I said, it's a real 80s pretty boy. It's a pretty boy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The pouty re- lips, the attitude of like, oh, I'm not impressed. Yeah. My parents let me borrow the BMW whenever I want. Correct. Because <laughs> in fact, it's my BMW. It's that kind of vibe. <laughs> oh, and I might have lice if it's Joe's. That's what <laughs> yeah, he says. Yeah. If it's Joe's, if it's Joe's, he's also adding the lice part. And the point where like, everybody's like, are you going to go? I actually thought was kind of funny. Like, are you going to do this or what? I thought that was like worth a chuckle in the, when they're all kind of just in the room cleaning up one day. It's like, shut up and just do this. Like, I thought that was kind of funny. But then it's also kind of like, you guys do it. This is stressful. (laughs) It's not easy. Because they're like, we don't believe you. You're telling too many people about it. Like, we don't think you're actually going to do it. He's a pretty chatty guy for a movie that isn't, it doesn't actually contain a lot of dialogue. (laughs) There's the guy he asks, who's just like, just like head shakes him on the way downstairs. Yeah. Like, no. Yeah. He says, it's a, your plan is a fairy tale. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. I couldn't remember if that was Orsini or the other guy that he ended up asking. Well, because Orsini was like, your plan's fine. I got a better one. Do you, Orsini? Do you? It's not thought through. You didn't think it through. Yeah. And he does end up needing Jost in the end. That's what's exciting too. Because if he had gone without him, he wouldn't have been able to make that one ledge because it was a two-person ledger. One person needed to help the other person up. Exactly. So thank goodness he brought Jost. Yeah, one presumes he would have thrown the the hook over the and hook. pulled himself up. But like, it's just easier. No, you're right. It's just easier. There's something about the Jost character I don't think I've quite figured out yet. It was like his narrative necessity to both like the story ending the way it does and to, and to Fontaine's character, like could he, like how necessary is just, I think maybe, I think you're right. I think he is very necessary, but then you wonder like, but could he done it by himself? I don't know. Uh, We'll never know. I mean, I love how it just throws a wrench in his plan and also makes our main character like have to realize that he either has to convince this boy to have his same courage and go yeah. with him or he's going to murder this yeah. boy and that may be the only reason for it existing it's just like he has one more decision to make yeah it's like it's not not that it's ever fun i know that we're like noting like things that were kind of quirky here and there but it, uh the movie is very dark and very serious and so it's it's a part where we start to see him not just kind of moving forward and he has to kind of like deal with like what is his humanity if he's now considering taking others away. Yeah. Well, and maybe it helped with his confidence too, of like having that person there to watch you do it. You're more likely to go through with the thing if someone's like sitting there staring at you being like, when are you going to do it? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> he might've <laughs> hesitated and never crossed that final one Yeah, where he like stopped in his tracks and you see on Joe's face, him kind of like giving him a wry, like it's been a long time. <laughs> ready. So, yeah. yeah. Something that you were talking about just, then Adam reminded me like all the like sort of funny sort of comedic moments don't come out of the movie just being old movie funny like oh so mm-hmm. funny the way the way they made movies back then Hilarious. <laughs> yeah. and like like it's comedic because it's old-fashioned like no I feel like the genuinely funny moments in the song because they are actually genuinely 
funny or I, the the film is actually trying to be amusing in that moment. Maybe maybe Rasan isn't and like we totally missed the point, but I I never feel like the the chuckles out loud, even the jazz hands thing, come <laughs> from like you know these are old creaky movies and sort of the disdain that old movies occasionally get watched and then watched by modern audiences and are and are, are laughed at instead of with. So mm-hmm. I definitely felt like all the sort of like the fun, funny moments come from the story itself that are really organic and like are earned. They come from the humanity and the details for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I feel like uh, watching this movie makes me feel very lazy because I know if I was in the same situation, I would not have come up with any of this and I would probably not have tried to escape and I would have just probably accepted my fate. So I think that's one more added thing of like, when you watch this, you're like, wow, I am so lazy. He is so much better than I am. Is it, does anyone else feel that way too? <laughs> I mean, my first watch very much so because I didn't really have, I had a very, very basic concept of what he was doing, but the fear to me was like, where are you? going and then i had like this existential crisis of like where are all of us going and what is our what is our end (laughs) and what when do how do we accept an end is our end you know sitting here in this cage is it you know storming the castle is it running out uh running away and where are you running to is where you're running to does it still exist (laughs) and those are all the things that make me when I watched it that first time just go oh this is terrifying and I that's that unknown that it really presents to you that you just go oh god I I don't know what I would do I was definitely be that person like yeah I don't I don't think she blew up that bridge dude let's just go back to the cafe and, <laughs> and uh, have another coffee <laughs> that yeah. would be me but two <laughs> the other part is it's just like yeah it's a real film about conviction and yeah. hope and the necessity to fight I mean, it's not a World War II movie, except when it explicitly is a World War II movie. And, you know, the same thing that we said before about him talking to Joseph, like, no, you can't stand on the sideline of this fight. You just can't. Yeah. You have to stand up for what you believe in. You have to stand up for, in this instance, the, you know, the French way of life. And, you know, if it means you have to, to die for it, then that's what you have to be done. Because to do anything less is, is, is not enough. I think conviction is a really good word. And I think I was realizing this as we were talking of like, this is what makes him exceptional, his resourcefulness, his conviction. This is what makes him an exceptional character. And he's a real person. And like, this is why the the good side won World War II, because people had a lot of conviction and were willing to bravely act. And I think what I'm realizing now is my fear for what I see happening in the world now and not being able to react maybe in the same way that this this person in this prison does, his resourcefulness, his conviction, his competence. I'm like, oh no, I see authoritarianism rising in the world. Where is, where is Andre de Vignet? To, to be really smart and to help us out. Crap. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's what I'm thinking right now. When I think of the closest thing that I can relate to how he felt trying to escape and that suspense is such a silly thing from my past of I remember in scout camp our troops would like play pranks on each other and in the middle of the night we would like sneak into the other campsites or and you were not allowed to do that so it's already very like oh we're doing something naughty here (laughs) staying up late and all we were doing was at, at least this one time all we were doing was like uh 
like leaving uh it was almost like a capture the flag in reverse of like we got into your campsite and like put this piece of paper here that says we're here and you didn't see us and there was like three or four of us and we we like snuck over and then we like put this little piece of paper on a rock on their table so it's like we won that night and as we were getting away we saw flashlights come from the horizon and we like immediately were like there's no other way out of here except for where those flashlights are coming to us and it was pretty immediate so we all just we couldn't hide anywhere so we just dropped to the ground i thought you're gonna be like we stormed the flashlights (laughs) (laughs) dropped to the ground we just like buried ourselves as much as our our faces could into the dirt and like hid all of our bodies so that we could like just basically get real dirty but we had to do it super quiet so we just kind of rolled around got very dirty they walked right between us yeah i remember like opening an eye and the light was on my head and passed over my head but because we were just so of course there's not going to be three or four Mm -hmm. boys just rolling in the dirt in the middle of the night they didn't notice we were just other logs next to other logs to them and we heard them pass by us flashlights went over us we heard them walk away and i remember getting hearing them get to the table and go huh because they saw the piece of paper and then they just went into their tents and then and then we got up and snuck back to our own site two questions one was it worth it two you were an eagle scout could you break out of a world war ii prison camp with the skills that you learned yes you're like yes and yes (laughs) let's see yes yes and yes um the adrenaline after is was so amazing that like we got away with something and like we won and we almost lost it's almost like that you know 30 seconds left in the game and you're down one point and like can you actually get that last score in like at zero and you do and it it very much felt like that because it's also very low stakes the (laughs) the only thing that would have happened was (laughs) yeah what are you doing in the ground go to bed but there was like a win there and then your second question i would hope that i could could you turn an iron spoon into a gadget i mean after watching this movie Yes. I would be the shim guy. Everybody would be like, Adam, we need a shim. Out of the way, everyone. There is that detail about, oh, and then I had to wait until I got an iron spoon. And I was like, yeah, I'm out already. Like, I wouldn't know the difference between, because it was, what did he say? There were two other- Dan, aluminum spoons are way too bendy and everybody knows it. My goodness. (laughs) I I had just been sharpening that aluminum spoon and like breaking them constantly. I'm like, God, this is some cheap, this is just cheap metal. (laughs) I was so impressed that he knew an iron spoon from the rest he knew it immediately and i was like wow this is some real dad core stuff for like <laughs> I, you know my dad could probably tell the difference between aluminum and iron and i like you know he could tell the difference between like tree leaves you know because he i needed him to do a project for me when i was like in the fifth grade you know i i couldn't like that's a tree that's a tree a maple an elm i have no idea what those things look like but my dad did and i just it's like everybody has their certain segment of knowledge and just like yeah, yeah. that's true if there was something about film in this and you, it was like oh. reliant on your life that it would need to be resolved by knowing about film. If people you needed would, to tell the difference it. between the emulsion and the base, we would, yeah. you know, help them in Is a this second. nitrate or acetate, Dan? <laughs> your life depends on it. Yeah, no. yeah, maybe. We all, we all have our knowledge. We all have our knowledge. 
this is just it's like part where you just say, saying Sarah about like like could we come together as a people to overthrow a, a you know somebody like the Nazis and I think there's something really to be said about World War II being the last sort of collective experience of people coming together but then being told in a very like in the way our society is now in a very individualistic way is like this one guy decides he's going to escape because fuck the Nazis and he does. But like, I think those days are kind of long gone of like, you know, we have been drilled into our heads to be like, as long as I'm happy, that's all that really matters. And that kind of lays the groundwork for like a lot of the problems we end up having. But that's once we sort of lose our faith in our governments and we lose faith in, the, in, a, in a collective in the community, yeah. which now just gets lumped into like the minute you come together and say, as a collective, if we all just did acts, you're immediately branded as a communist. And like suddenly like, we don't want to stay at a bread line. So he's like, no, I don't, one isn't the other. So like, I think we definitely reached a point where like, you know, uh, thinking about your neighbor a little bit more would be helpful to us. And well, I don't know if this, this movie says that, but in his actions, like, it's like, you know, even the one person must stand up against this tyranny, if it, even if it costs your life. To bring it all back to Jesus, yeah, I'm pretty sure that guy said, love your neighbor as yourself. So mm. we tied in the idea of working for other people, not just yourself and Jesus, just like the movie did. Yeah. Look at that. Full circle. I think. I actually don't know if Jesus said that. I don't. I can't tell you. Yep, that, is that good. real? Yeah, that's real. That's real, right? You're like, no, that's a Hallmark quote, Sarah. Yeah, that's and I'd be like, I don't know. That happens right after Gwen decides she is going to invest in the Christmas tree farm with uh, with Devin. I thought, yep, yep, okay. Just, just had to check because you know, once again, Jewish, don't know these things. Um, okay, all right. So I'm now going to lead us into the modern lens portion of this show. This is where we talk about like what holds up, what doesn't hold up. Honestly, so much holds up, not just in the storytelling, but like in the ideology of like, yeah, anti-authoritarianism. Um, but also I love that he's not macho. I love that this is not an ego-driven thing. Like this is not um, him showing off in any way, shape or form. He does show how he feels and sometimes he cries. Sometimes he has uncontrollable laughter. Sometimes he's scared and he hesitates. So I love that this is not like a macho based thing. Um, that's really cool to me. I will say, obviously, people at home, there are no people of color in this film and there are like not really any women, but it's a Nazi prison camp. So like it's pretty accurate to that situation of the time, I bet. Yeah. And also it's just focusing pretty much on one person. I mean, in a way yeah. you could say you can make a movie that focuses on any one person when we're choosing to focus on this one. Well, I think the storytelling holds up too. And I think part of the reason is it doesn't try to show us, like we're not seeing anything ridiculous from the past. Like Dan was mentioning earlier. It's like, we don't see a crazy fight sequence. It's just like the idea of it. So I think because it's in such a controlled environment and is based on these little episodic suspense episodes that it really, really holds up storytelling wise um, and visually. Uh, yeah, that's what I think. Dan, what do you think? But this movie just really holds up. And if if there's something to be like, would be difficult for like modern audiences, like, I mean, I, I you know, I'm, I'm someone who's, you know, love all forms of cinema, but I get somehow like, oh, it's, it could be too slow. You know, it's maybe it's tense, but it's just like a guy standing around kind of chit-chatting and you know, there isn't enough like action happening, you know, that like maybe they could have told this story like a little quicker, but like, I just don't, I, I just think this is a, a pretty perfect 
movie and you could ding it like well it's a black and white and boring it's a little slow it's like i don't i don't know about that yeah it really does come down to taste like yeah you know, if, you, if you don't like, like those things then sure but that has nothing to do with you know should this be movie made differently but also the cinematography of it being black and white is gorgeous like yeah. when they escape yeah. and you see the shards on the wall that look like they're shining if we get that in color we don't see that we don't get that and his mm-hmm. blood i'm sure the, the streaks of blood are so powerful when it's not in color so i think there are certain things that benefit from it being in black and white yeah especially because yeah. it's a prison film prison is you know monochrome mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. not a world of color so i think it it makes it look more chic i think it really benefits it and continues with this whole sparse sparse visual element thing mm. that we've got going on i think it's gorgeous it's a good yeah point. that's what i think yeah i think it's as close to a perfect film as you can you can probably get and you can ding it for small things but i i, I you know as we were saying i think this is just a movie that just proves that like yeah i mean your brain can fill in the gaps Nowadays, he'd have a machine gun and he'd shoot everybody on the way out and there'd be explosions. You would just see all that stuff where you really where you really don't. And, you know, our, you know, I guess in a way, our own perverted minds fill in the gory details better than than they could have imagined for us. Because, like, you know, we will always make the worst version of like how it smelled and the slop buckets and the stink. And like, it's always, you know, we always go to the extreme. Well, and they didn't even include that in this film. They didn't include the worst aspects of what his memoir was. It showed everything it needed to show. And I think as like being so traumatized from all of the visuals of what the Nazis did and, you know, it's, it's actually kind of refreshing to have a movie where you can just watch. You don't have all of that, you know, it's not Schindler's list. Like Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it doesn't come with all of the trauma. So even someone mm. like me, who's a Jewish person who had family that died in concentration camps because they were Jewish, I can watch this without all all of that extra additional trauma mm. and just kind of enjoy it for the suspense film that it is, you know? So I, I kind of appreciate it, that it's not it's not hitting me over the head with it, but yeah. still very clear in its conviction. Yeah. Um, not that we shouldn't have those films. We should have them, but I'm glad that this isn't that. He had a story he wanted to tell, and that's that's the story he told. Like there yeah. are other films that can fill in the gaps for how terrible the Germans and the Nazis were in World War II. There was dozens, if not hundreds, of those movies, and dozens, dozens and hundreds of the of those movies that kind of follow. All right, everyone. I'm going to move us into the double feature portion of this show. If you liked this movie, what are some movies you could watch with it? Um, So my number one film was Escape from Alcatraz, mainly because it's like the contemporary version of this movie, also based on a true story. Um, It's a little more heartbreaking and they're not as altruistic. Like the people there are guilty of their crime and they're in Alcatraz, but (laughs) it's it's fascinating and there it's it's a similar um a similar style of suspense so i would say check that out um i wrote the great escape despite never completing that film but it's people escaping a nazi prison camp with steve mcqueen in a motorcycle right yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah, i think that's a good one the world war ii element definitely Definitely. sort of is you know more front and center but like you know so it's a plan let's 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 go do this thing same with stalag 17 william holden mm-hmm. also escaping a prisoner of war camp right. um i have not seen this one but la grande illusion a french film the grand illusion yeah i haven't seen it but that popped up for like ooh, if you'd like this you should check out this and i went oh i might i might okay. check it out yeah i'm, I'm writing things down now that's uh jean gabin and uh jean renoir that's a great film but yeah similarly prisoners of war uh you know who are sort of escaping and being moved on from, you know, one prison to another. I forgot about this movie and then remembered it when we were talking about contemporary films. Ryan Reynolds was in that film. I think it's called Buried, where he is trapped in, he's buried alive, 
trapped in a coffin and the whole film is him trying to escape. I remember when that came out and I remember people liking it. I didn't see it. So (laughs) I'm saying I think it would be similar. I think you might like it and I think it'd make a good double feature. (laughs) I think I remember that movie. I think I remember that movie. Because it's like from his point of view and he's got like the the lighter and that's like all he has. Oh, wow. And he's in the coffin. I missed this one. Anyway, so that's a thing. Um, I also wrote down Life is Beautiful because you know what? It's a life affirming film about World War II from the perspective I get those of people vibes. Yeah, that are in prison trying to make the best of this situation in a concentration camp. It's beautiful, but it's very sad, but it's beautiful. Um, and then I didn't think about this till now, but Casablanca has the guy learning conviction as he goes. So maybe Casablanca, maybe. I don't know. I mean, Casablanca. Yeah, like you should. You should Casablanca. You, you don't really you need just a watch reason. Casablanca yeah, anyway. Part two is of this because it's just watch Casablanca. People at home, some Bresson films that you could watch this with are Diary of a Country Priest, Pickpocket, and I'm going to butcher this French name, Al Usard Balthazar. Yes, I, I end up just saying Balthazar. Balthazar, the donkey movie. So anyway, those are one million of my recommendations uh, for a double feature. What do you what say you both? I have a, I have a few. Um, I mean, the while watching it, um, I like immediately thought of The Passion of Joan of Arc as another one, though. I don't know if I'd want to watch those two right after it, another. But the thing is, he made a Joan of Arc film. So you oh, can just did? watch you can just yeah, watch yeah. his. Just <laughs> yeah. do that one. Sure. So have a three uh, film night. Uh, and then the other one uh, would be uh, uh, Hiroshima Mon Amour was another one I thought of that's World War II related, uh, uh, but just on the other front, I guess mm-hmm. one could say, but post-war, I, I suppose. Fair amount of voiceover in that too. That's Exactly. It was reminding me of all the talking. Um, but then after the movie, I was thinking about less about like, you know, what is... European or having to do with the war. Um, and I thought of uh, the Truman Show. Yeah, it's an escape film. He's being tricked to believe he's living a real life, of course. But that was just another, like, if if we wanted to not, if we wanted to veer away from Nazis and have like a palate cleansing movie, there's like a, a fun escape movie. He has to have conviction in order to escape. So yeah. yeah, there's a theme. The last thing that I thought of just in our talking here is uh, uh, it's my favorite movie, which is the Blair Witch Project. And the fact that you do not see what the scary thing is the whole time. And it's a lot of sounds. It's a lot of wondering what's happening and the suspense of not really knowing where you're going. It's a bit more dark than this movie. Um, but uh, I, I've i always loved that movie for how great it is at just having basically nothing happening but uh, it terrifies me i didn't know that was your favorite movie i've never seen it because it's too scary for me it's very scary yeah that's one of those movies that uh, on a very short list of great theatrical experiences that makes the list just because when it came out it's just like everybody's heard about blair witch since it premiered at sundance and like being in a the theater i think that friday night like one of the few films that came with so much hype it just completely delivered but Dan, do you have any double features? Yeah, you know, I mentioned uh, Shawshank Redemption earlier. Um, maybe because it's just a prison film. It's about hope. It's about, you know, movies about characters who find themselves in impossibly difficult situations where 
you know, there's a real chance that the sort of the inner light could be, you know, literally, if not physically snuffed out and like how you survive that, like how you, how you not just physically survive that, but how you mentally and emotionally survive prison. And I thought, I thought that was a pretty good comp, but it's also one that, you know, um, I think it's pretty obvious. And then I, yeah, I, I thought about escape from Alcatraz for all of the other sort of aesthetic reasons, like mm-hmm. minimal dialogue, there's a plan, let's escape. Like it is, you know, no must. They need each other to escape too in the end. Yeah. It's like, you know, there's no fat, there's no sort of like wasted scene. You know, yeah. it's it's a little more literal about who the bad guys are and there's sort yeah. of really great Patrick McGowan. But also similarly, like, you know, the guards are kind of off to the side. There's only a couple instances where the, the bad guys, in this case, the prison guards or the warden are doing mean things. But you're right about that, you know, these are hardened criminals and they just, you know. But most of the films I ended up thinking about, I think I also mentioned like, you know, thief films, people, you know, trying to steal stuff. And that's why I mentioned Ocean's Eleven, the, the Soderbergh Ocean's films, I think are kind of a really good, like, you know, uh, th- that's more of a team. Let's get a group of guys together and, and, yeah. and steal some stuff here. Our hero has some real trouble <laughs> recruiting people. And then the other one I thought of was Jules Dassin's um, Rafifi. Mainly, mainly because the the heist portion is essentially this very long stretch where there's very little there's very little talking, and it's like what noise is created during this sort of like job of stealing, like is only to the detriment of the people trying to do the thieving. Like if they make a wrong noise, they'll be caught, and that's so everything has to be very quiet and like every little noise, like you're on, you know, you're you have your fists clenched and your teeth. Mm-hmm. and you're hoping that like they don't make this noise so they don't get caught it's sort of so i thought about that film a lot um and films like that a lot but uh but all yours are really great so it's almost like we all love film I, and know it really well yeah. and watch different kinds of films <laughs> i loved your choices too thank you both so much for being here if people want to see your work or find things outside of our show um what should they check out and how can they find you um well you may find me at something called home movie day which I think is a really fun thing if people are interested. I mean, we're all working in the library archives field. And if you're curious about, you know, archiving, film archiving, like if you have questions for uh, archivists or thinking about film preservation, like Home Movie Day is a great place to uh, learn about the physicality of film, as well as like get a sense of like, everyone's personal histories it's real fun like everyone gets together they bring you can bring your home movie it's across the nation and it's like a movie on film like real life film yeah so people bring their 16 millimeter eight millimeter old home movies um and uh yeah pretty much it happens at the same time of year every year it's in october i think actually in la this year it'll be in early november but um, every like major city has one. And so if you look up the center of home movies, you can find that. And, uh, and yeah, you might find some really cool things. And you get to learn a lot about the like city or town that you're going to because you're watching these home movies that could go as far back as the 30s and seeing what the city you live in looked like then. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get to like kind of call out, I mean, all these are silent. So everyone just gets to like call out and see if they know anything. Um, you kind of play bingo with it. And uh, and yeah, it can be real fun. Dan, do you want to add anything? So the whole movie day was such a 
good thing to bring up because uh, I, along with Adam, actually involved with the Association of Moving Image Archivists. We have a yearly conference this year. We're going to be in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And sort of similarly, if you're someone who is interested in, in this field and figuring out like maybe how you want to participate or wondering about what are the sort of the multitude of topics that we talk about when we talk about, you know, audiovisual preservation, conservation. This is a conference that takes place every year. And Adam and I help to organize panels and topics for people to show up and, and talk about the, the good work they do. This conference is just a, you know, a room full of six or 700 archivists that work on a variety of levels from small historical societies to large university archives to studio archives who take care of film, who do preserving a film, who work at laboratories. So, you know, it's a really good place to sort of like start if you're interested in, in archiving at all. So yeah, everybody at home, check out Home Movie Day in a city near you or Los Angeles and check out EMEA and their conference that they're holding this year. So yeah, check out all those things. Those are great suggestions. Those are very valuable. Yeah. All right. Well, Adam and Dan, thank you so much for being here. It was wonderful chatting with you. Thank you, Sarah. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. And we'll see you all next time on Talk Classic to Me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guests this week were Adam Foster and Daniel Wagner. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and maybe even find us on Anchor.fm or Spotify for podcasters because they're the same thing now to become a contributing member. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me for some awesome content and to find out what's coming up next. Thanks for listening.